0: Welcome to this latest in the series of Let's Be Clear podcasts, the series that's been running since we started to experience the pandemic and COVID-19 and the impact it's had both on society and on employment. We've had a lot of really interesting guests and I'm so delighted today to introduce to you somebody that I would like to call both a friend and a professional colleague now, as we've got to know each other over the last couple of years, which is Ngozi Weller, founder and director of Aurora Wellness, a mental wellbeing coaching consultancy that I know is doing an amazing amount of good with employers and organisations during these difficult times. So welcome Ngozi to Let's Be Clear podcast. Would you like to just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about you know what drives Aurora Wellness and, and our conversation today?
1: Thank you so much for that introduction, Kate. That was really really good. You did a great job. So I don't know how much more I can add, but yes, my name is Ngozi and I run a company called Aurora Wellness with my cousin and business partner Obehi Alifojé, who is a psychologist and stress management coach. And the aim of the company. The reason why we founded it was really simple. It was to enable good mental health and well being in the workplace for everybody. And it was based on both of our experiences, our personal experiences of what it's like working in the modern workplace. I struggled with anxiety and depression. And essentially, I burnt out of my career, my corporate career, in 2017. And in recovering from that, I recognize that actually the things that happened to me didn't have to go as far as they did. If I'd received the kind of help that we now offer at Aurora at an earlier stage, I would have been able to recover and stay. So that's the incentive behind the work that I do is to stop anybody else from having to go through the horror of burnout and mental ill health due to work. Thank you,
0: uh, Ngozi. And, and as I said to you at the time when we first met and you shared your story with me, you know, thank you for the privilege of, of sharing so openly and transparently. It gives other people both permission and opportunity to do so. And And it's one of the reasons why at the Clear Company we're particularly keen to partner with Aurora Wellness, because of its its great foundations, which are based in authenticity and lived experience, and that's the kind of partnership that we want to enjoy, and and, and want our clients, customers, and, and obviously the listeners to this podcast to enjoy. What's interesting for me is that this is pre pandemic, you know, and 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 yeah. burnout. Um, and corporate burnout is is, is like common parlance it doesn't make it any more palatable but it is common parlance in in, in corporate circles as of 2020 and 2021. Is there anything that you can share with our audience today about the triggers the symptoms and of course most importantly what could have been done
1: to change this pattern in, in in your life for you? That's such a good point. We are now entering a new phase, one that I'm glad that we're entering, where we are recognising the importance of having a balance in focus from a corporate perspective on physical health and mental health, because that's something we've always been championing. We've always been saying that there's no point in spending millions of dollars like companies like that I worked for would do each year on keeping your employees physically safe If at the same time you're running them ragged and they are burning out because a person is a whole. What we used to have was the hangover, I think, of the high flying power 90s in corporate speak, where there was this almost, I'm hesitating to say macho, but a macho kind of overwork culture where at least in top tier companies and many others in fact, You were considered successful if you said phrases like, oh, I've just got no time for that or I've got so much on that if you were working weekends and evenings, it's because you're important, because you're doing a good job. And that kind of unhealthy way of looking at corporate success and what it takes to climb the ranks is something that, that needs a societal shift. And that is what's happening, even if it was precipitated by the awful events of 2019, 2020 COVID, it started the debate as to say, what really does matter? And how can we be effective without being exhaustive? And that's the thing. But before then there was certainly when I was working, there was this culture that you were always on I mean, working from home is a new phenomenon for so many people, but I've always worked from home for my career, pretty much. So it's not new to me, but that ability to switch off from your work is something that's quite difficult to do when you work from home because it's it's everywhere. And it was quite common for people to, even though we worked part-time sometimes, to just never really stop working. And that's considered a sign of, well, you're in a senior position now, that's. That's what it is. That's what it is to be in the big leagues. And that's just not healthy and nor is it sustainable, nor is it productive actually, because what happens is after a while, the level of stress that you have just builds up and it needs to release. And if you don't do something to release it, it will lead you to slow down. Your body will start to to slow you down and you'll be less effective. You might be working the same number of hours, but your output, hasn't increased exponentially so for me it's very clear when we teach well-being um, in our talks or in our angel of well-being workshops we talk about the three stages of burnout and this is something that's actually categorized so you can google search it what are the three stages of burnout and each state has various characteristics. I hesitate to, to list all the characteristics because otherwise your audience might say, mm, maybe I'm at stage two without having it in context. But there are certain things that you can look out for that will indicate whether or not you are now at a reasonable or unreasonable level of workplace stress, right? And the thing is, though, we often know when we are reaching our limit, but we ignore the signs. We ignore the signs because we don't feel we have permission to do anything else. And that's what we need. We need a culture in our company that says, I don't want you to run ragged. I want you to do a good thorough job safely, physically and mentally, safely. So that if you can say, I'm actually struggling right now with the workload, I cannot do, any more hours. I need to take a break. You have no fear of the repercussions, no fear that people will judge you, no fear that people will say you can't make it, that you're not quite up to, to scratch. That is the concern that stops us from speaking out. Because I think most people will recognise those signs and will say, yeah, I, I noticed when I was in stage one and I noticed when I crept up to stage two. By the time you're in stage three, where you have thoughts of, like I did, suicidal ideations." It's too late. It's too late. We need to catch people at a much earlier stage. But if we make it easier, more acceptable by normalising the conversation around mental health at work, then people will feel free to say, you know, to be honest, I have not been sleeping great. My appetite is gone. I'm getting more irritable. I know that I need to take a step back. But I've got this X, Y and Z projects that I can't shift. Can you help me? then that's the kind of conversations we should be having. So in, in essence, we'll come back to the signs because
0: I think that, I think that's really important. I want to spend some time on that in terms of those indicators so that both on an individual level and on an employer level, we can be much mm. clearer about what it is that we're looking for. And, and, and as you know, one of my common phrases is, is there anybody in the room that hasn't had that three o'clock in the morning panic attack for whatever reason? Do stand up if it's you and nobody ever stands up because everybody's always at some point in their life had that and needs permission not to come into work at eight o'clock that morning because they've actually only had two hours sleep and and staying in bed for half a day would mean they'd have a fantastic half day when they did come in as opposed to totally unproductive exhausting full day exactly yeah and, but it's connecting that as well I think isn't it as, as well to to mental health so we're talking much more openly about mental health the conversation I and mean, we've got a long way to go we all recognize that but we've come a long way certainly from when you and I started having these these kind of conversations much more mm. open, and particularly at a senior level, as, as I've talked to you about before, you know, I'm talking to many more people at C-suite level in corporate organisations who are openly saying that as a result of the pandemic, as as a result of the murder of George Floyd, as a result of the pressures of Brexit, as a result of so many other socioeconomic factors, that their, their mental health is, it, it, is a victim of that. And they're being very open about that. Where I think some of the, the disconnect is, is connecting corporate pressure and stress mm-hmm. and hours at the desk and hours of work and a need to please and a need to conform with good or poor mental health I think that there's a kind of disconnect between that you know we can put in flexible working options and we can and um, put well-being programs in so people can have mindfulness sessions but are we actually tackling some of the root causes that we as employees could be in control of as opposed to addressing when we have colleagues who have a mental health condition have poor or fluctuating mental health that we might have programs employee assistance programs might have access to counseling all of these kind of things but what we could also have in our gift is the opportunity to change the underlying culture that's contributing if not causing some of this I'd be really interested Absolutely. to hear from you about how do we create this you've talked about environment of trust where it feels safe to have these conversations so in your experience you've been working with I know a lot of employers over these difficult challenging times what mm-hmm. sort of things? can and are employers doing to stop it getting to stage three and we'll come back to talk about what stage
1: one and two might look like in a moment really what I try to stop companies from doing is thinking that because they've got well-being days or some mental health first aiders or they've done a talk that they've got well-being taken care of that's what a lot of people seem to think is, no, we're we're good on well-being because we've done these three things. What I'm saying is those things are tactical. What you need to do is have a, an effective, holistic strategy. And we call that the Aurora 360. That means that the whole of your organisation is geared towards the success of the individuals who work for it. So what that means is, are you talking to your employees? Are you listening to what they're saying? That's the first stage, that's the discovery. Do you know what they need? Do you know what they want? Do you know how they feel about the current policies that you have? How well are they being used? How many times are you surveying them? How well are the line managers translating what you in um, the C-suite have said is your corporate policy or structure? How are they translating that on a practical level with the people who are working for them? So is the message trickling down? Contacting and speaking to our employees shouldn't be an afterthought. It should be a regular thing that we do to find out what we need to change. That's that's the first bit. The second step is the awareness step, where companies tend to excel and and, uh, pride themselves. So, yes, it's really important that we have a generally good level of awareness as to what mental health is and isn't. What does good mental health look like? What does good look like to us in our company? What is important for you as an individual? What's important to us? So here's where you'd fit your awareness days, your flexible working hours, all those kinds of things. Those matter. And this is where you can do a lot of good work with training everyone in the organization to recognize signs of stress, signs of mental ill health in themselves and in others so that there's just a base level of understanding of this is not okay, I need to ask for help or I need to give some help. But that's just one piece of the puzzle. The next piece is the empowerment piece, which is where you have to say, how are we going to make sure that everybody in this company is coming along for the ride? And the best way isn't just through a talk here or there or an odd picnic thing. Uh, you know on a on a sunny june day but it is by making sure that you're doing that kind of stuff regularly you're talking and connecting with your employees regularly and that's the key to us at aurora is the line managers empower your line managers which means train them and give them the awareness and the tools and the flexibility to do something about the issues that they see so when we talk about what can they do if a line manager recognises that a particular individual is struggling, what can they do within your organisation? Because most people feel very anxious about talking mental health. It's uncomfortable for many people. They don't want to make it worse. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't know what the right thing is to say. So they say nothing. And <laughs> That's not the right thing. And even those of us who struggle with our mental health we perpetuate that by letting them off the hook, if you like, by not saying anything because it's awkward for us as well. We don't want to bring it up at work. So then there's this great silence where we everybody just pretends the elephant is not in the room. But we need to encourage our, our line managers by training them, guiding them, coaching them, supporting them, making them very aware that this is an important part of their role is managing the overall well-being of their staff so that they can say, you know what, Ngarzi, I don't think things are right with you at the moment. I can see that you're working erratic hours or you've seen more quiet than usual. What's going on? And they can have these conversations confidently knowing that they're not going to mess it up. They're not going to cause problems for anybody. And knowing where to signpost for additional help. So that's the piece that requires the most effort because it's difficult to automate that you can't just give people an app and say yeah just go and check the app it's not something that eaps can just take care of it's a fully immersive and to a great extent individualistic process You, as a manager, Kate, what is your personality style? What is your management style? How do you communicate? What do you feel comfortable doing? What don't you feel comfortable doing? How do you show that? What are you able to share about your own well-being that can encourage someone else? What experiences do you have? It requires a lot of commitment and investment from organisations, but it is absolutely the most effective way to make sure that every individual comes along this well-being journey and nobody is left out in the cold. And then you have the final piece of the puzzle, which is all about making sure that no matter who is in the chair, as the line manager or head of HR or CEO, that every employee will have the same experience. And it's the governance piece. What policies do you have in place? How regularly are these updated? How regularly are these stewarded? Are they independently monitored? So that that to me is the whole pie. And to find companies that are doing all all slices of that pie or taking care of all pieces of that pie well is really rare because it's a big job that we're only now just coming to terms with the need to do. But that's what it takes. It's not just one thing or the other, it's all of it. If you have all of those things in place, then you stand a good chance of catching most people at that stage one and two before they get to stage three. That doesn't mean you'll catch everyone, but it will help.
0: Because I, I, I get that, it's that kind of holistic approach. And we do have organisations, don't we, where they'll have a well-being policy, but how much of that policy translates into action? We exactly. might have an that's a great, comfortable, transparent culture, but actually, that makes it sometimes more difficult to have the tricky conversations because we're all best mates and stuff as well. And I know at the Clear Company—we're at a size where that, that thats an issue for us. We all know each other so well that can we have to really work at introducing, you know, some of the difficult conversations for ourselves. And, and, and we're doing some work on that as a team. But the thing that that strikes me is the whole thing about progressive culture. So if you've got an organisation that's got, a, you know, an intensely progressive culture, and you see this a lot in financial services, particularly banking, and as you know, we work extensively in the insurance sector where long hours is the cultural norm and it's not necessarily Mm. imposed by the organisation. There's nothing written down that says we expect you to be there. There's everything written down that says we don't. Yeah. But people just are. Have you got anything that you've seen people do or that you advise organisations to do on, on a kind of, I think I'm talking probably on a cultural level in terms of saying, what can you do to stop having to intervene at stages one, two and three? Because pre that, you've created a culture where we're stopping this as far as, as, far as it was in our gift to, to do so.
1: Very little of how we behave is explicitly told to us. Most of it is modelled. So I'd say in those organisations that are looking and going, well, why why are people working so late? I don't know why. They can finish at six. What are the leadership doing? Are they finishing at six? Are they making a, a show of it? I've seen some or heard some brilliant examples of companies whereby... Now, on the email footer, managers will say, OK, I work X and, between X and X time. If I receive an email outside of this time, then I may not respond. That's fantastic. But when you are saying one thing and doing another, then the, the message is actually do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. So if you have a company where the culture is such that we are all doing our best to outwork each other, You will stay here until 10 p.m. You will sacrifice your personal life because the big boss does. Well, if the big boss made a show of every Wednesday, every Friday, uh, I shut down at six and I go home and I'll do this whether you follow me or not, it becomes easier to be a person who does that. If the boss says, why are you emailing me at 8 p.m.? Why did you do that? It's not necessary. That could have waited till the morning then it becomes easier for you as an employee to do it. So I'd always question what the leadership are doing. And this is something that I've been talking about. So I run around table now called The Rise of the New Leader. And it's about leadership skills being, as I said, critical in, in changing the company culture. So why we need to focus on developing those softer, more human skills now, in our leaders, instead of looking towards people who are functionally excellent only, we need to look at people who are displaying the kind of characteristics we want to be representative of the organisations that we work for.
0: It's really interesting you should say that, actually, because if we look at the at the Clear Company's journey over the past, you know, nearly twenty years, the last three years, and specifically, in 10 the last eighteen months. The increasing growth is within inclusive leadership and our leadership, you know, inclusive coaching, where organizations are recognizing that they're asking different things of their leadership but they need to invest in them to do so. Because I've spoken to a number of CEOs of big FTSE organisations over the last 12 months who essentially are having a job change. They've had this functional role and they've grown up into it since they either left school or university and, and joined wherever they did as a school leaver or a graduate. Yeah. they have always known that's where their ambition lay and that's what the job would look like. And that job's now changed. So in its own way, that's creating stress and anxiety on a leadership population that, that has to be given the tools and be empowered to lead in a different way and understand the impact of their own behaviours and their own roles, et cetera, which, which I, I totally get. Um, you're making me think. I'm always, as you know, if you listen to these podcasts, extremely open about my own failings, if, if you like, or, or learning points. And I, I know, for example, I've tried to do this with our team, So I have Pilates. That keeps me going. It's kept me going during COVID. And I have my Pilates session. It's absolutely rigid. And I put the time out. And I put my time out on a Tuesday. So Tuesday's a non-working day because my Pilates. But I answer emails on it all day. And I've just realised now I'm doing that so the team don't feel I've left them in the lurch. But actually what I'm doing is saying to everybody else, when you booked a day off, you should be emailing because I am. And that's not what I'm trying to do at all. So team clear, you won't be getting emails from me again on a Tuesday. Sorry about that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that wasn't the motivation at all. But I completely get what you're saying about the impact of my behaviour as a leader in the business on Mm -hmm. setting other people's expectations. Whereas actually having the confidence to say it's okay to take time out because you've already recognize as I have fluctuating health condition that I need to take time out of periods of time and then that makes me work better when I'm in so you Mm -hmm. need to give the rest of the team permission to do that so that's a fantastic insight I'm going to come back to something that you said if I may you said finding organizations who are doing all of this is quite rare because it's it's relatively new realized and I do get that because we've gone from you know health and safety officers and chief medical officers to directors of well well-being and, and you know we're we increasingly mm. seeing people on the board with well-being in, in, in their job titles it is relatively new. I saw a case study recently I think it was last week with the Department for Justice being celebrated for putting a holistic well-being program in uh, which covered a number of the things that you were talking about didn't talk about the coaching element which is another thing but have you got any examples that our, our listeners could perhaps go and have a look at of organizations who might not be doing it perfectly but maybe have, have made some good strides that we could all
1: learn from there are several companies who have done some things fantastically well but I don't and I don't mean to say this as an insult I have not seen a company that has done the full 360 so I can't say yes absolutely every company must model x y and z there are bits of companies who have done some incredible things and we're hearing more and more about them companies who have introduced things like flexible working companies who are who are introducing things like access to free coaching and counseling for their staff i I recently read about a company in the u.s where the ceo took something like a 70 percent pay cut so that all of his staff can receive a minimum wage that was double what they were being paid before because financial well-being was important to them. So I've seen companies do lots of wonderful things, but I haven't seen a company which has genuinely got this all sewn up. That doesn't mean that doesn't exist. And if you think that your company has got the full package, I would love to meet with you, hear from you, and um, interview you, actually, because that would be fantastic. Many companies have well-being policies. How well those are implemented through is very difficult to know. Many companies have well-being days, mental health first aiders. The effect of that and whether or not they have trained line managers, i not often seen that. Or companies who might deliver training for their line managers but not have anything like a survey for their employees to say. Yeah. Well, this
0: is how we actually you feel. Voices, don't you? I suppose. And what I'm hearing as well, it's interesting because I'm talking to a number of the Clear Company clients at the moment we're working with who have put a lot of things in place, particularly during COVID. So they've gone from, in some cases, nothing to having mindfulness sessions and access to mental health wellbeing websites and and coaching circles and all sorts of things. And they're thinking, you know, we, we have to do this because we recognise the mental wellbeing of our colleagues is at risk here. And, and and there's a really big recognition what I'm finding in conversations with the same colleagues in organisations now is how much of this has been used? Where is the take-up? And is that proportionate take-up amongst different demographics, amongst different regions, amongst different job groups, under different line managers, all of those kind of things. You put this amazing flexible working programme and then realise that it's fabulous. It's modern. It's, it's you know you probably won awards for it. Nobody's actually using it. So I think mm-hmm. with the wellness and, and and particularly mental health wellness that, that we've been talking about today the message I'm hearing from you Ngozi is that holistic approach investing in people investing in systems creating transparency but on top of all of that measuring the impact all of the time going back and, and hearing the voice of the colleagues what are they doing
1: is it having an impact are they using it mm-hmm. absolutely and a lot of companies do say things like that don't they that well we put these things in in place, nobody's using it. Therefore, the the understanding is it's not required. That's not necessarily true. Why are they not using it? That's the question. Everybody knows mental health is an increasing issue. The World uh, Economics Forum just recently did um, some analysis and they calculated that by the year 2030, mental health issues is going to cost, the treatment of mental health issues is going to cost $16 trillion, which is more than the cost of, I think, diabetes, cancer, and respiratory issues combined. So it's going to be a significant driver. So there is no research paper that's saying, actually, mental health is doing really well. Everybody's great. All of them are saying mental health is an increasing issue. So if you are finding that you're doing things to support mental well-being in your organisation and the uptake isn't there, it's not because need isn't there. The need is there. You have to say, well, what is it that's stopping people from taking this up? And it's often a cultural thing. I I just love that line, and Ngozi, that... What's stopping people
0: from taking up? Well, the need is there. So it's something about either what you're providing or how you're giving access to it. And it's right back to our basics around diversity and inclusion, isn't it? That you know we haven't got diverse boards, diversity falls off at the midpoint. So either we're saying that only certain people, certain people of a certain demographic are good enough to run companies, or there's something that's stopping access to opportunity and preventing people from progressing. And it's exactly the same in this space. So we need to look to ourselves in our organization mm-hmm. and say, the need is there, our good intentions are there, but there's a gap in the middle about practical application and things that work. And that's what we need to look to. We're out of time. I can't believe we've actually overrun, but that always happens when you and I meet, and see. Before I close the podcast for our listeners, is there a final word that you'd like to to leave with everybody to, to just kickstart some action where perhaps people are struggling to know what to do next?
1: yes the one thing that i i want everybody to know particularly if you're in hr or senior leadership in management you're thinking this is all really great but i don't know what to do the whole thing that you you need to recognize is that you don't have to do it on your own okay the age of the hr superhero is gone you cannot manage this on your own so go and seek expert advice you wouldn't try and roll out a dni initiative without speaking to kate so Go and seek the expert in mental health and wellbeing to look at how you can improve the well-being strategy that your company is trying to implement. That's what I'd say. That's a
0: great note to end on. And uh, contact details for Ngozi either are or will very shortly be available via the Clear Company website, the and also all of these podcasts and other materials, free of charge available on all of our social media channels, which will be available for you on this podcast site. So, thank you very much, Ngozi. I know it was a dream for you. You've worked extremely hard to make it a reality. Good luck to all the companies that engage with you. I'm, I'm sure they're benefiting hugely. Uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you again today, and I look forward to speaking again really soon.
1: Thank you so much, Kate. It's been a delight. Thank you.